Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. I am Stephen. I'm the pastor here. I am so, so excited for today's teaching. We just had our huge uh, student ministry event resonate that was in this room all weekend. I'm going to share a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but man, God is at work. I am really, really glad that you guys are here right now. I hope you are too. This series has been helpful for a lot of people. It's helpful for me as I'm preparing it because uh, God is is working in my heart days before I teach it and, and challenging me and convicting me with the things I need to do uh, to improve my friendships and my relationships and my marriage. So very, very excited that we're here. Let me ask you guys a question. How many of you have like a hobby or something that you're really passionate about that uh, your friends or your partner, your spouse is definitely not passionate about. Like this is a one-sided thing. We all kind of have something, right? Okay, how many of your spouse is really passionate about something and they really want you to be passionate about it, but you're just not. And so you do it with them, but it's a discipline. It takes work. It's fun for them. It's miserable for you, right? Uh, so uh, for Valentine's Day, I got Katie uh, an Audrey Hepburn movie collection, and that's for her, not for me. Um, any Audrey Hepburn fans in the room? Okay, Katie, take note. They'll watch it with you, not me, okay? They enjoy that. Uh, we all have that, right? Like, I love, I love watching sports, and my wife will watch sports because she loves me, right? Uh, it's, it's fun for me. It's work for her. It's kind of like uh, if you've got a kid, a young kid, and you ever tried to seesaw with them. In fact, we went to a playground a few months ago, and uh, here, I'll show you guys a picture of the, these one side. It's like if, you, if you're the, the grown adult and you're seesawing uh, with your daughter, uh, it's fun for her, but you're doing all of the work. So you're exhausted, right? And we went to this playground, and going to a playground during COVID is like, going, it's like the walking dead. It's completely abandoned. There's nobody there. You're afraid that a zombie is going to jump out because you're like, where are all the people, right? So we were there, and we're, we're hanging out, and Hazel's having a blast, and she just wants to seesaw like forever, and eventually Katie's like exhausted because she's, she's, she's doing all of the work, right? We know what that feels like. Unfortunately, so many relationships end up being like that, where it's fun for one of them, and they feel like everything's going great, and the other person is discouraged and exhausted and miserable and feels trapped because, quite frankly, they're doing all the work. In fact, some of you even today... Um, you might be here, you might be in a relationship, and you're here and they're not, and that's how you feel. Uh, and, and as we end this series, I think it's so important that we come face-to-face with that, that we're just honest, that some of us need to make some big decisions, some bold decisions in our relationships because we're on different pages, and we need to get on the same page. It's so, it's so important. And so as we wrap up this teaching series, um, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about two people, both sides being fully committed to a relationship or even to a friendship so that it doesn't turn into a one-sided seesaw, right? We all have friendships that are one-sided. We all do, and it's discouraging where the other person says, it's great, and you're frustrated, right? We know what that's like. We don't want that. God doesn't want that for your life. He doesn't want all of your energy to go negative because you feel like you're just burning through the pistons. and like He wants you to enjoy the relationships in your life, and he wants you to experience why he created those in the first place. And so what we're going to do today as we wrap this up 
whether you're dating, whether you're engaged, married, or, or in your friendships, we're going to look at how we can be healthy and holy if both people are committed to three things. Those are the things. We're going to look at three different things. So I encourage you to do this. I've encouraged you for this teaching series. I encourage you to do this every single week, but especially in this teaching series because I think it's really, really important. Take notes. If you, if you bring a journal, that's a great, great practice. Um, if not, just open up notes on your phone and don't just go to Instagram, like actually take notes. Like let's actually give the next 25 minutes to God and see what he might want to teach us through this because I think there's something in here for all of us. Um, We're gonna look at the three elements that every committed relationship needs and think of it like a three-legged stool that uh, like the, the healthy relationship sits on top of a stool and there's three legs and you need all three of them. What happens if one of the legs is missing? The stool collapses. What happens if one of the legs is weak? It's wobbly. So the idea is that all three of these elements that we're going to look at are ones that that you're working on, that you're improving on, that are getting stronger and stronger. But before we focus on the legs, we need to focus on what keeps the legs attached to the table. What's at the heart of all three of these factors, the glue that holds them in? And it goes right back to what we talked about last week, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 a word that many of us do not like. We cringe. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Now, here's what it's saying. It's not saying, give over all your authority. Let the other person do whatever they want. That's not what it's saying. Submit more, more accurately means to yield to, to humble yourselves. That This is about humility, not authority. This is about humility, not control. That humility is the glue that holds these legs in place. Now, sometimes what the church does very poorly is we focus on the wife needs to submit to the husband, but the passage begins by saying submit to one another, that both of us need to submit. And if you aren't willing to humble yourself before the needs of the other, it, it does not have the capacity to be a godly relationship. Like, this, this, is, this is where it all begins, and I think for a lot of us, this is where the breakdown is. Most marriages in our country, I would say even the majority of marriages uh, that attend church together are not really the godly relationships that God wants them to be, and it begins and it ends here. That one of you may be crushing it at humility, and you feel weird saying that. Like, one of my favorite shows is Parks and Rec, and Tom Haverford, he goes, I'm pretty amazing at being humble. Like, we feel weird saying that, right? Because it's kind of ironic. But, but when humility is absent, there is growing tension. So our tendency in these conversations is this. Our tendency is to put us first and to think what we're doing right and what the other person is doing wrong. And I th- in fact, all the time, all of the time, this is human nature. It's a defense mechanism. When you're hearing a message, your defense mechanism is not to say, I need to do better at that. Your defense mechanism is to say, that person's doing worse than I am. This person needs to hear this message. Oh, my kid needs to hear this. I'm going to play it for them tomorrow morning, right? Like, that's our tendency. Or if you're in a relationship, you're like, hey, I'm going to make sure they watch it back. Fight against that. Don't skip over you in this. Because in order for this to work, the glue is humility, and it starts with your heart. Do you really believe that in your relationships and even in your friendships that you're submitting to the other person, that you're putting their needs and their desires before your own? Because our tendency is to push the blame. So maybe a good thing for us to just take time to think of is how do I grade my humility right now in my relationship? And I'd say this, if you get defensive and if, you, if it's easy for you to think of all the things that are wrong in your relationship because it's the other person's fault, there might be a struggle with humility. 
So I want to look at a few passages that I think will help us a little bit. The first one is Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, that I think gives us um, a picture. Here's what it says. Uh, Paul is writing, and we've looked a lot of what Paul has to say about relationships, about singleness and the beauty and the value of singleness and the beauty and the value of marriage, that both are acceptable, beautiful choices that you can make and both can glorify God with your life. Here's what it says, Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, and he's not just saying that like in an expressive, he's actually in prison as he's writing this, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. You're God's masterpiece. You're God's chosen, unique person. God has a unique, special story for your life. You've been chosen by God. Always be humble and gentle. Well, that just eliminated the room, didn't it? We struggle with that. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Saying, leave space in your, in your relationships for the other person to mess up because you know they're going to. And gentleness and, and patience is knowing that that's going to happen and not pouncing them when it does. So where do we need to be gentler in our relationships? Where do we need to be more humble in our relationships? Maybe that's just a good question for us to kind of constantly go back to. And by the way, if you're having a hard time coming up with an answer for these, ask your spouse. I'm sure they have an answer, <laughs> right? In fact, here's something that Katie and I do that you can steal, is on our dates, what we've started to do, we picked this up from a mentor of mine, is when we go out on a date, um, we, we, we say, what are three ways that I have blessed you since our last date? So it's just a chance for us to encourage and say, I really appreciate you did this, or I'm thankful that you did this. And Katie and I, our love languages are a little different, so our answers are a little different. It's always neat because the things that she appreciates most are maybe not the first things that would come to mind for me. But then we, after that, we say, how can I bless you more this next week, this next month? And sometimes we feel bad saying it. It's like, oh, you're doing such a good job. But it's like, well, no, this is an opportunity for you to say, what can I do better? That's a really good practice because it gives you this open avenue to sit across from your partner and just say, hey, how can I do better? What am I doing that inadvertently that might be hurting you? This is your chance. I, like, I'm giving you permission to speak into it. So the theme here is this. Like, here's the first leg is godly commitment is rooted in sacrifice. Just like every godly relationship is rooted in sacrifice. In order for you to have the kind of relationship God designed for you, it can only happen if you're willing to sacrifice me in order to serve them. And this is so often where the breakdown comes in our relationships. We stand at the altar, and it's a beautiful ceremony, and we say our vows, how we're fully committed to one another, and we eat the cake, and we dance, and we party, and we go on the honeymoon, and then what happens weeks later, and what happens months later? The selfishness creeps back in. And it's not that we didn't mean what we said in the vows. It means that our sinful nature has surfaced to the top. Right? We know that. Like, I don't, think, I don't think I've ever officiated a wedding where the guy or the girl was just like smirking as they're saying the vows. They're like, whatever it takes to get married. Like, we all believe that in that moment because we want that to be true. We want to have these kind of relationships. Like, we have these conversations. We want to have that kind of marriage. But what happens? Selfishness surfaces to the top. It's kind of like how all of us begin the year, not all of us, but most of us, begin the year saying, I want to lose weight. This is the year I'm going to do it. So, you know, sign up for a gym membership, or you do a workout plan online thing, or you buy some new weights or whatever, you're fully into it. Like you're making a commitment. 2021 is going to be the year. And then what happens? February. And here we are eating cake again, right? And then March comes. Like the relationships that do this well 
are rooted in sacrifice and are still committed to sacrifice in February and in March and when it gets hard. Because it was more about the commitment being made, not just the emotion in that ceremony. And that's where the breakdown is. It's not, I don't think it's intentional. I think it just slowly happens over time. So you know what separates the great marriages from the good ones? Are the consistent, sacrificial, it's the grind. It's the consistent, sacrificial grind. The willingness to still sacrifice to each other, even when the honeymoon season ends. Even when it's financially tight. Even when your kids are adding stress to your life that you didn't anticipate. Even when just like a given Tuesday takes more energy. When crisis hits. When stress increases. That's what you made your vows for. It's not for the vacations. Everyone can do that. It's will you commit to sacrifice even during the grind? Not for the next two years, but for the next 50 a slogan that, I, as a student pastor, I would say when we were on mission trips is that sometimes you're just, it's just that grind and you're exhausted. I remember we were in Houston and we were clearing out a lot and it was, the heat index was 111 degrees. I know, it's like, why live in Texas? Exactly, right? 111 degrees and everyone's like miserable. It's middle schoolers mowing lawns so that they can turn these into plots, so that they can turn it into plots for new community development. It's a really cool project through United Way that we're helping with. And one of the guys, like we came together, and one of the leaders who has a military background, he says, something we would say in the Marines on days like this is embrace the suck. It's going to be crummy, so just embrace it, put your head down, and don't give up. That we prepared for this. Like we're ready for this. Like in your marriage, if you went through counseling or you had a lot of conversations in your marriage, like you prepared for these moments, for the stressful crisis moments. Like you, you anticipated the pain. You prepared for the pain so that you can persevere the pain. That's what it means to have that kind of sacrifice. Not just a sacrifice we get excited to talk about on Sundays. We're going to do that, we're going to do that. But like, you're going to persevere the pain. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus says this. This is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. If you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, you have to give up your own way. That sacrifice is the first leg in a healthy, committed relationship. It's at the heart of following Jesus. So what area of your life... Do you know you need to be more sacrificial? Maybe you're just holding on too tightly to it. Maybe if you're just being honest, you know you're being a little too selfish in that area. And again, if you can't come up with an answer, ask your partner. They'll come up with one for you. In love and in gentleness, right? But you might be, um, it might be time. I think some of us are really selfish with our time. And we feel like our time is our own. Like we're so busy that we're entitled to do whatever we want whenever we want. So maybe you need to hold that a little bit looser. Uh, maybe it's the way you spend your money. Maybe there's tension in your marriage because the way that you're viewing money and the way you're choosing to spend your money is bringing a lot of stress to your partner. And you need to be less selfish there because your relationship to them matters way more than what you want to buy or don't buy. Expectations. Maybe it's expectations. Maybe your expectations are even higher than what God's are for your relationship. And it's creating a lot of tension. So the first leg is sacrifice. The second one is this godly Commitment is rooted in transparency. This is one I'm really passionate about because I think most people don't have a lot of people in their life that they can be honestly transparent with. A healthy relationship is one where both people feel completely safe with each other. And that's hard to find, isn't it? And I don't just mean physically safe. I mean emotionally safe. Like you can actually share everything about your life with them. How many people in your life do you feel like you can share anything about yourself with? Probably not many, right? 
That's hard to find. Maybe one, two. I mean, there's, there's very few. If you, if you can say, I've got 10 to 15, you might be oversharing. Like, you probably shouldn't have many in that, right? Like, they don't feel safe with you now. Like, authentic transparency in a relationship is so important, yet so hard to find, isn't it? Even in the church, I think it's so hard to find. I mean, Harvard estimates, this was five years ago. This was pre-COVID. I think this is way higher now. Harvard study said that 84% of Americans struggle with loneliness every week. That's pre-COVID. I'd say it's 100 now. Like, that's just, this is authenticity and authentic transparency is so hard to find. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. It says, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. It's saying, even as painful as it is, we just need people that we can be honest with. So when, if somebody's honest enough to rebuke you in love and in gentleness, that's better than hidden secret love where they're thinking about things behind your back. Wounds from a sincere, authentic friend are better than many kisses from an enemy, that we long for sincerity and honesty. Sincere, honest communication is a powerful thing. It's something we hunger for to find someone we can be honest with, someone that can be honest with us, in gentle, humble love. Now, you can't manufacture that, right? You can't. The heartfelt counsel, uh, verse 9 there, it says, the heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. We just want people that can be truly honest with us. And, and some of us, like, we want it so much that we might um, move too quickly in that, and it might overwhelm the other person. And some of us, because of insecurity, we're afraid to take any steps towards it. And so we're just on the surface with everybody. But that's, that's at the heart of, of a godly relationship, is someone that you can be truly transparent with. Godly commitment needs transparency, because you can be fully honest with them. Uh, one of the best books I read last year is a book called Safe People by Henry Cloud, and he has this quote, safe people, it's people that you can be truly safe with. Um, and here's what he says, he says, unsafe people, so emotionally safe, not physically, think they have it all together instead of admitting their weaknesses. I think a lot of us struggle with that. It's important you have people in your life you feel like you can be safe with. Maybe a good question for you to ask is how safe do you feel in your relationship to be truly vulnerable about everything? What area of your life do you hold back? Like if you don't feel safe, why is that? Is it something that you need to do? Is it something that they have done? I think this is really, really, really important. I think we're afraid to take steps and put ourselves out there, right? That's human nature because we don't want to be rejected. Even when, when I started to date Katie, um, she was far more confident in herself than I was as a 23-year-old, and, uh, and I was very insecure. I was afraid of women. I still am, and uh, I, I, liked, I liked her, but honestly, I'd never, I didn't date a lot in high school and college. I always kind of wanted to be the Paul. I'm like, I'm going to be single for life, and then I met Katie. I was like, never mind. And I, we, we went to coffee together, and I could tell I really liked her, but I, my assumption is she did not like me, because my assumption up to that point was every person I meet does not like me. And so, uh, and so she was texting me, and, and she was trying to lure me in. And she was like, so, so her, her little thing that she was doing was, she, she's an interior designer. In fact, if you love the space out there, Katie's the one that designed it. So she, uh, she 
was saying, I, I just moved into a brand new office in the church. And she says, hey, do you want me to come up and help you design it? And she was like texting me a few days later. She's like, hey, you want me to come up and help you design it? And I'm just like, I guess I don't care about the design. Like I'm totally missing the signs there. So I go and I talk to my administrative assistant, Martha, who's a woman, which means she's immediately qualified to, to give me relational advice. And I'm like, does she like me? And she's looking, and Martha is quintessential Tennessee. So she's like, <laughs> she definitely likes you. That's what she said. <laughs> She's like laughing at it. She's like, it's obvious, Stephen. She definitely likes you. And so like I needed to hear that like confirmation before I would take a step. Gentlemen, you know how terrifying it can be to ask the girl out, right? You don't want to put yourself out there and be like, oh, I misread that. My bad. That's awkward. Like I wanted to make sure I knew like if is this a guaranteed yes if I ask her out? That's what I needed. So many times we are afraid to put ourselves out there, even in existing relationships. We hold ourselves back because we aren't sure how that we're going to be received. Being vulnerable is a risk. You're being brutally honest in hopes that you're met with love and gentleness. And for some of you, in your relationships and in your friendships, you need to put yourself out there and be more honest because vulnerability breeds vulnerability. You'll see this more as you start to lean into it more. If you want to see more transparency in your relationships, you may need to take the first step. One of the common uh, feedbacks I'll hear from a life group leader, like a new life group leader at our church, is I just want to see my group open up more. And you know what I say to them? Then you open up more. Vulnerability breeds vulnerability. You might be in a life group. You're like, I just want us, like, I want to knock down the walls. We're still getting to know each other. Don't rush into it. Don't be the first one and say, here's all my sin right here. Don't be that person. But if you want to see vulnerability, you take that first step. You take the risk. You open up, and then you see what happens. Because when you do that, when you're vulnerable, you're giving other people permission to be vulnerable back. You're saying, this is a safe place. You can be safe with me, and I'll start. I'll show you. James 5.16, this is a very important posture that we have as Christians. Confess your sins to each other. Be honest with each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So is there an area in your life you need to be more honest? Because everyone's broken. And when you get married, you open up your life to someone else's brokenness. You're agreeing to a life of complete honesty and vulnerability. And so as a result you're going to see deeper levels of brokenness in your spouse than in any person you have before. Does that mean they're the worst person you've ever met? Absolutely not. It means they're the person that gave you permission to see all the deep roots in their heart. That's a good thing. That's a safety thing that we need. Don't hold that against them. Instead, commit to being that safe person for them. God wants you to feel safe in your committed relationships. For those of you that don't, and if you're being honest, you know you might not ever. You might be dating someone, and, you, and you've been dating long enough to know, I don't know if I'll ever feel fully myself. Like, I keep finding myself making excuses for why they, like, it's not this, but that's okay. It's, they've, they've gone through, you know. Like, if you know, then you know. You might have to take a bold step and step away. Because God wants you to feel safe. Now, if you're married and you're in a covenant relationship with them, you don't just step away. You fight for safety. You fight for it. Now, here's the third leg. Godly commitment is rooted in forgiveness. The entire Christian faith is rooted in the truth that God forgives us and he calls us to do the same. In fact, without forgiveness, there is no Christian faith. That's everything. 
is forgiveness. It's at the heart of everything we believe and everything God calls us to be. Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus this. He says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Now, here's why he says seven times, because in the Jewish faith, they say you forgive them once. So when he says seven times, the other Jews are like, that's astronomical. Why would you forgive them seven times over? Here's how Jesus responds. No, not seven times but 70 times seven. Now, people wouldn't know any better that he's not just coming up with a math number that you forgive them 490 times. That's not what he's saying. In the Bible, if you wanna know, there's something called numerology, which means numbers in the Bible actually represent something. So the number 12, anybody know? Where do you see the number 12 in the Bible? The 12 apostles, the 12 tribes of Israel. The number 12 represents the completion of God's people. That's why in Revelation, 12 times 12,000, 144,000, it says in heaven, that it's, it's, it's a number that represents all of God's people. There's some people that think there's going to be exactly 144,000 people in heaven. Nope, it's symbolic. It's saying the completion of God's people. That's what 12 represents. Seven represents the number of fullness in the Bible. So whenever you see seven, it, it's almost like the full circle. So when Jesus says 70 times seven, he's basically saying endless times. You never stop forgiving. You never run out of forgiveness. It is endless forgiveness because that's what Jesus gives us. Now, here's a guarantee. The person that you are married to will hurt you. Sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident, sometimes deliberate, sometimes out of emotion, but it will happen because it's two broken people trying to commit to a relationship together. And when Jesus tells us to forgive, there are no conditions attached to it, are there? That's what's hard. He doesn't say forgive as long as they apologize. That's what we're waiting for. And by the way, we're going to get to that in a moment. You need to apologize. But the posture of somebody who has submitted and humbled themselves, it doesn't mean you allow yourself to be trampled over them. But Jesus is saying you forgive quickly. And you know why he says that? Because Jesus knows that forgiveness is just as much about us as it is the person who hurt us. So we have to take responsibility for our pain. Not forgiving somebody, holding on to a grudge or something they said years ago, it's like pulling around a piece of luggage. It slows you down, it weighs you down, it like you take it with you wherever you go. When that person's name comes up, it's pain. At that point, that's on you. You've got to let it go. They may not ever apologize. They may not ever seek restoration or reconciliation. And there's nothing you might be able to do to change that. But what you can change is letting go, forgiving, and moving on. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Here are a few suggestions that I want to give you. I read a great book called Why Won't You Apologize that uh, was very, very helpful. Um, and I realized how hard it is for us to apologize. It's really hard for us to apologize. Um, and here's a few tips I just want to give you that I got out of that. The first one is this. Apologize quickly and with no but attached to it. If you say, I'm sorry, but you're a jerk, come on, it's not an apology. A true apology is I'm sorry for. I'm sorry for, not I'm sorry, but. You're not making excuses. See, that's a defense mechanism too. When you say I'm sorry, but it's kind of your fault. Like that's not, that's not really an apology. An apology is I'm sorry that I hurt you. Just get used to saying that. I'm sorry I hurt you. I didn't mean to. Or maybe you did, and you need to apologize even more. But all the time. Sometimes I'll say things when I teach, and, and I'll get an email on Monday or Tuesday and say, hey, you said this, and that, that, that felt insensitive to me. I'm so, I'm, and I, I didn't necessarily mean that at all. I was making a joke, but it, hey, I'm sorry I'm hurt you. I did not at all. If the, that's the last thing I want is for you to be hurt 
by something I said. I'm sorry. So I don't defend myself. I say, you're wrong. My heart is in the Lord. Like, I'm not going to do that. That doesn't help the person. But that's what we do. We justify. We have to get our, no. Humility, you, you do everything you can to be a peacemaker. So you apologize and you don't throw butt in there. Another tip, don't reject someone's apology due to it feeling insincere. Give people the benefit of the doubt. If your kid comes to apologize, don't be like, nope, don't believe it. Now you're just making it harder for them. Even if you know it's insincere, give them the practice of knowing that you're a safe person. That they can come to you and apologize even if they don't feel it because the next time they know they're going to come to you and not be rejected. So don't throw it back in someone's face because it's hard enough to apologize. I'm sorry are the two most healing words in the English language and we need to use them more often because you hurt and offend people more than you realize. We need to be quick to apologize. I have a pastor friend of mine that said whenever he's sitting down with somebody that he knows he's hurt and they want to sit down, they have a conversation, it's, he knows it's going to be a tense conversation. And in the back of his mind, he knows that they misinterpreted. He didn't, he didn't, what he said was not what they heard. And so he could defend and justify, but he always starts the conversation by saying, hey, before you say anything, I just want to say I'm sorry I hurt you. He didn't try to justify. Because what's the point? The goal of that conversation is healing, not justification. It's so important we get that, because I think, I think we're not great at this, right? We know that. Some of you are really good at apologizing. Most of us are not. We need to get better at it. Proverbs 17.9, it says, when love, prosper, love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. How many of us can resonate with that? We all can, right? Who do you need to forgive? Who are you, like, what pain are you holding on to that you just need to forgive and, and move on? It doesn't mean you're allowing them to keep hurting you. That does, that's not what it means. It means you're not holding on to pain from the past. You're going to forgive them like Jesus forgives you. So sacrifice, transparency, and forgiveness. These are the three legs. And you know what makes all of these achievable? Is covenant. A covenant commitment to one another. The covenant is a promise that both of you have made to each other. We call that marriage. That in a marriage, I have made a covenant of unconditional, unrelentless, continuing eternal love to my wife. A lifetime of pursuit, a lifetime of humility, a lifetime of servanthood. So when we fight, when it's hard, when it's exhausting, when it's stressful, we go back to the covenant. We're not, we've prepared for the pain. No, 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 but, but we're married, so we'll, we'll fight through it, even if it's harder. It's way easier to give up and to step away. But you know what? We made a covenant. We're going to go back to that. See, covenant makes sacrifice appropriate. Covenant makes transparency safe. Covenant makes forgiveness possible because you know that when you apologize, you're apologizing to someone who's committed to try to not to hurt you again. They will, but they're going to try not to. And that's the best we can get sometimes, right? So as we wrap up this series, I just want to give you some, some honest suggestions. If you're pre-married and you're not married yet, you're in a relationship, so no covenant relationship, you haven't made a covenant, but you're living together, you're sleeping together, you're acting like a married couple, but with the absence of the covenant agreement, Bob would say you're living in sin. Because you want to experience the thing that a married couple have, but you're not willing to make the commitment that the Bible calls you to make. My challenge to you is this. Repent quickly. Turn from it. 
Be bold enough to abstain from sleeping together. If you need to move out, move out. If you need to abstain until you get married, abstain. Because I will promise you this. As long as you live in a sinful lifestyle in your relationship, God will not bless your relationship. So if you're waiting for God to show up and you're getting frustrated that he's not, it may be because your relationship has sinful patterns in it that you have not turned from. In fact, I'll say this, most marriage counseling I do with pre-married couples, my goal is to get them married as soon as possible. I know this is the opposite of a lot of the advice that you give. And you might cringe and you're like, teenager, do not listen to this. I'm not talking about your teenager. I'm saying if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're already acting like a married couple, but you haven't made the covenant, get married or step away because you are living in sin. You want to experience the goodness without the covenant. That is not at all God's intention. In fact, in the Bible, it was all arranged marriages. So you didn't even have a relationship until the covenant came. The covenant was the beginning of getting to know somebody. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a more biblical pattern, is the covenant comes before all the benefits of the relationship. There was a couple last year that I was meeting with, great, great couple. Uh, They go to the Avon location. And we were meeting, and I just asked them, I said, guys, is it fair to say that you're already acting like a married couple? They said, yeah. Yeah. I said, so what, why are you waiting if you know that what you're doing isn't, isn't right in God's eyes? They said, well, we're waiting for this, 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 this. They had like a checklist. We need to see God do this, this. I said, he's not going to do any of that until you get married. Why would he bless sin? So I'll say this. I will say this. If you are in this room and you're in a relationship and you're acting like a married couple, but you're not married, I would love to meet with you and talk about you getting married next week. I'm not kidding, guys. I officiated that couple's, I talked about that. I said, let's do it next week at the park. They got married 10 days later because they realized, I said, we have to get you out of this pattern of sin as quickly as possible. And you, the, today's the last, like it's, it's done. We're done with it. You're going to abstain. We're going to do this because I want God to bless your relationship. I don't want you to go another hour longer with God saying, I'm not blessing. I'm not touching that. So I'm being serious. It drives me crazy. All this, you have to be engaged for a year so you can plan a 400 person wedding. no. You make your decisions based on what God wants to do in your relationship. Katie and I, I told her four weeks in, I loved her. Seven months later, we were married. I proposed to her four months in. You guys laugh. Oh, I proposed four months in. We were married three months later. We had a beautiful 300-person wedding because Katie's a master event planner. That's the only reason. But I'll tell you, we said once we knew I wanted to be with that person, I said, why would I wait? See, I'm impatient. I'm the most impatient person in the room. So I know that you have to balance it out with godly patience, all that yada, yada, yada. But seriously, put God first in this. I'm telling you, Satan wants to slow this thing down because he knows you're going to burn with lust and he knows it's not going to get easier, it's going to get harder. So if you're pre-married, you have got to be bold. You've got to be courageous. Unless you just want God to not bless your relationship. That's your call. So which stool, which leg is, is the most important? The one that's missing, right? So in your relationship, do you need more sacrifice? Do you need more transparency? Do you need more forgiveness? And what I don't mean is, do you need it from them? I mean, what do you need to do better at? Which leg is wobbly or which leg? It's just completely missing. Married, married people, if you're struggling, ask yourself why. Where do you need to sacrifice more? Where do you need to be more transparent? Where do you need to forgive more? I'll close with this. Um, last night, we, we wrapped up Resonate, which was our student event that we had here. And we have a new Facebook group, by the way, Grace Church West Bridgewater, that you can join. And I'll just post different things from time to time. So I posted, hey, please be praying for this. And a ton of you said, hey, we're praying this weekend for our students. Thank you for doing that. God worked in a miraculous way in our student ministry last night. Just in this room, like, like 15 hours ago, 
We saw five students accept Christ. Five teenagers accept Christ in this room. Because your prayer is because of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Now, here's what I love. I'm going to be honest with you. If, if our entire church had the same passion and enthusiasm that our teenagers have, we'd be in a totally different place. I love teenagers, man. They are recklessly chasing after God. And last night, I stood right here and I said, what's the thing you need to lay down to chase after God? And all the students in the room, they're, they're like praying, they're crying, they're saying, that's it. Like, I don't want anything to stop me from chasing after God. God, I want you to bless my life. I want you to take my story to something way more exciting. And I told them, I said, I hope and I pray that your parents, that your grandparents, that all the adults in the room have the same passion and the eagerness to follow God that you have because this is awesome. This is exciting. What it came to for them was they're willing to boldly make decisions to put God first, knowing that they're in the minority, knowing that our generation, like, Man, I'm so tired of us making fun of the Gen Z and the millennial generation and saying they can't do this, they can't do this. What about they can? What about the creative, the innovation? Gen Z right now, the trials they are facing are so much harder than I faced as a teenager. I, could, I don't know how I do high school remote. Like there's so many things. I think we need to be more gracious, more gentle, more humble towards them because they're the ones making bold decisions. I can't wait to have teenagers in my home because I know they're going to spur me on in my faith. I cannot wait for that. Boldness, that's what it takes. Proverbs 28, 1, it says, The wicked run away when no one is chasing them, but the godly are as bold as lions. We ought to be bold, guys, in our relationship. If we really want to see God work, if you want to be in that minority of a godly, healthy, holy relationship, it takes boldness. You're going to have to put yourself out there. You're going to have to take steps to get there. It takes work, but embrace the suck. It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Be bold. Do what is best so God can finally bless your relationship. Most people in the world have never had a godly, blessed relationship because they're not living in a pattern that God would bless. God wants to bless what's healthy, not what's unhealthy. So we got to get healthy. Katie and I celebrated uh, our 10-year wedding anniversary on Friday. 10 years. Thank you. Let me teach you my ways. (laughs) Some of you are like, 10 years. Call me at 20. Call me at 30. I know. You can leave all your presents under the tape. I'll just get them to go out. Um, Man, it's been awesome. And I can say, as somebody who's married, to those who are not married yet but want to be, it's worth the effort if you have a godly spouse, someone that wants to chase the Lord with you. So Katie and I, we we even came up with um, 10-year goals. So we're entering our second decade as a married couple. We came came up with 10 goals. Some of them are like fun goals, travel goals. Uh, just all different kinds. Like one of them is we want to celebrate an anniversary in Madrid. So actually our goal, because Katie lived in Madrid for a year, and so actually our goal is to do our tenure there, but COVID hates me and won't let me. So it'll be next year, next year. Um, but another one, I want to run a full marathon. And Katie's like, I want to watch you run a full marathon. <laughs> and I've run two halves, but they were four months apart. So I just have to run a half and then run back. That's my goal. But we have these goals. You know what I love? I love having a spouse that dreams with me, that I can share my dreams with, and then she shares hers. And then we're going to support each other. We're going to keep each other accountable. I love having a spouse that I can confess when I've hurt her and not worry that she's going to throw it back in my face. I love having a spouse that's committed to the Lord like I am. That when, when God calls us to do hard things, when God calls us to put finances first, 
When God calls us, even in our marriage, at the different times that we've even been in debt, and we're like, I don't know how we're going to make it work, but we're always going to put God first in our finances. We're always going to tithe first because God will bless us if we do. And I love having a spouse that didn't question that, that that wasn't even a conversation because we knew God's always first. I love having that. When you have that kind of relationship, it changes everything. It makes walking with Christ more enjoyable, more joyful, more beautiful. There is absolutely beautiful elements of being single. I know that. But if you're single because you just don't want to put in the work, fight against that. Because God might have something for you. The relationships God gives us are such a gift with tremendous potential. So let's do everything we can to work towards health and godliness in our relationships and our friendships. Let's close in prayer together. Now, I know there's two different kinds of people in this room. There's those who have gone all in to follow Jesus, and there's those who haven't yet. And I just want to, if, if you're here and you know that the missing element is you've never put God first, I just want to pray with you. And for those who have put God first, I just want you to begin to pray for the people in this room that haven't. Because that, that, it all goes back to this. If we want to experience the power and the love God created for us to share, we have to humble ourselves before God. So Lord, I thank you, God, I thank you that you care about our relationships, that you want us to get healthier. God, I pray that there's an excitement in the room, that we know our friendships are going to get healthier, we know our relationships, we know our marriages are going to get stronger, because we're making a commitment, God. We're putting you first. We're not going to allow the enemy to make us feel bad for where we've fallen short, God. We're excited because through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can help us to get better. So God, we're going to leave this room excited and energized. And God, right now, I just want to specifically pray for the people in this room who haven't made the decision to follow you. I just want to pray right now that they confess to you. They say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've fallen short. God, I want to put you first. Will you forgive me? Will you give me new life? Will you enter my life? God, I want to see the story you have for me, not just the one I'm trying to live out. Forgive me. Holy Spirit, come into my life. God, I pray this. Lord, we all pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.